Lord, we are uh, reminded uh, yet again of your generosity and your great provision uh, for us as a church. Lord, we thank you so much for Sam and Megan and for calling them here and for orchestrating all, uh, all of the steps leading up to this moment. We do pray and lift them up to you uh, this morning that you would continue to sustain them, uh, Lord, by the power of your right hand, that you would give them all the grace they need uh, in order to transition well, uh, Lord, as they finish up this chapter in Austin and, and move here. We pray for the selling of their house, that you give them favor, and uh, Lord, direct them exactly where you want them to live uh, here in uh, the northeast part of Indianapolis. Lord, thank you for this time that we have to look to your word. Uh, we pray for spiritual wisdom and understanding. We pray for our hearts to be softened, our eyes to be opened, where we want to receive what you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard a story uh, recently about two brothers, ages 8 and 10, uh, who were constantly getting into trouble. Uh, their mom was beside herself. She didn't know what to do, so she said, let's take them to the pastor to see if the pastor can help straighten them out. So the pastor uh, first uh, meets with the younger brother. Again, he's eight years old, meeting in his office, and the pastor looks at the younger brother right in the eyes and says, young man, where is God? And the young boy's eyes widened, didn't know how to answer that question, so he didn't. And so the pastor asked him again, said, young man, you'll answer me. Where is God? And the young boy starts to, you know, kind of squirm in his seat, doesn't answer him again. So the, the pastor asks him a third time with a very stern voice, says, young man, you will answer me. Where is God? And at that, the, the young boy jumped out of his seat, ran out of the pastor's office, ran past his older brother and mom down the hallway, and so much so that the older brother chased after him, caught up to him, wanted to know what, what happened in that room. What, what, what were you guys talking about? And the younger brother, with fear in his eyes, told his older brother, oh, we're in big trouble now. God has gone missing, and they think that we did it. <laughs> you know, on a, on a more serious note, that question that the pastor asked the younger brother, where is God? is a very common and yet very important question to ask. I wonder if you've ever gone through a season of your own life in which you've wondered, where is God? I wonder if you've ever gone through a season where you just kind of have felt like God has gone missing. Still Christian, still believe in God, but maybe you would say something feels off with the Lord. Maybe God feels distant and far from you, and you're wondering, where is God? Well, if you've ever been through a season like that, if you've ever asked that question, you're not alone. It's a far more common experience than you might even think. In fact, I think it's exactly what the people of God felt in 1 Samuel chapter 4, wondering, where is God? Has God gone missing? As we look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4 and even 4, 5, and 6 over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to see here is a bad example of how to respond when you feel like God has gone missing. This is not a happy and encouraging section in the book of 1 Samuel. Lots of warnings here as we dive in to chapter 4. I'm going to break up this chapter into four main acts, four main sections as we walk through verse by verse. Here's the first act. Act 1 is war with the Philistines. War with the Philistines. Just jumping right into verse 1, we're told that the word of Samuel spread all throughout Israel. This Word is likely the judgment 
uh, uh, over Eli, the priest at the time, and his household that came to Samuel in chapter 3. It began to spread all throughout uh, Israel. And what's interesting here is that the, uh, throughout the first three chapters, the, the story seems to have been, been building and building and building, uh, getting ready for the launch of Samuel's ministry. Right? We've seen many contrasts between Samuel and Eli, Samuel and Eli's sons, and it seems like all signs are pointing towards Samuel being the solution for Israel's problem. But what's interesting here is that after verse 1, Samuel is going to step off the scene here until chapter 7. We're not going to see him or hear about him throughout chapters 4, 5, and 6, and that is very intentional. There is a specific theological and literary point that's being made here over the next couple of chapters with Samuel's absence. In short, uh, these three chapters provide a picture of what happens when God's people no longer turn to God and follow God's leader. As Samuel steps off the scene, the Philistines step on as Israel goes out to battle against them. Now, we don't know exactly why they go and, and battle against the Philistines. We're not told here. It could be in relationship to what happened in chapter 3, but nonetheless, the Philistines were the primary enemy of God's people during uh, this time. They, just like the Israelites, are fairly new to this region uh, of the world. This is kind of Canaan, the promised land that Israel kind of settled into during the time of Judges. And they got to this place, this area, around the same time, a few hundred years before 1 Samuel 4. And they've just been battling over pieces, different pieces of land. And we're told that the Israelites had camped out a place called Ebenezer, which means rock of help. That will come very significant in chapter 7. Um, but the Philistines are at Aphek. Now, the reason why I've got this map up here, not just because I love maps and maps matter, but Aphek is right here. Ebenezer is really close. It's not highlighted here on this map, but it's very close to Aphek. But what I want us to understand is where Shiloh is in relationship to Aphek. You see that distance there? It's about 22 miles uh, apart. That'll become significant, especially in the second half uh, of chapter 4. So kind of visualize where they are as verse 2 tells us the disastrous news that Israel has been defeated. 4,000 Israelites die in battle. This is not good. Uh, in fact, every time God's people lost a battle during this time period, it always meant something. It didn't mean that God was weak or that the enemy was more powerful. It meant that something was happening uh, among God's people, something related to sin, in fact, you've got 200 years of history in the book of Judges, example after example of uh, whenever God's people lost, it was because of sin that was going on in their midst. In fact, that's kind of what we see in Act 2 now as we move to verses 3 through 11. After a crushing defeat, verse 11 tells us that the elders of Israel ask a great question. They asked why. More specifically, why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? So they rightly acknowledge that the reason why the Philistines won is not because they're more powerful than the Israelites, but it's because God withdrew his presence and his power from them. And so they rightly ask why. The problem is, though, they don't linger long enough with this question in order to dig down deep enough for the actual reason why God withdrew his presence. You notice here, they actually jump to a conclusion way too quickly. 
Because if they would have wrestled with this question, let it hang a little bit, they probably would have remembered a couple of scenarios in their past in which God allowed them to be defeated because of sin that they did not repent of. Probably would have remembered Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Oh, instead, notice what God's people do. Led by the elders, verses three and four, instead of turning to the Lord, acknowledging their sin, crying out for mercy, they come up with their own solution. Why God withdrew his presence and allowed them to lose this battle. Notice what they do. They think, oh, let's grab the Ark of the Covenant. That's the solution. That's the answer. That's gonna solve all of our problems. They think that the Ark will save them. Now, we need to talk about the Ark of the Covenant for just a moment. We need to talk about this because not only is the Ark of the Covenant a dominant theme in this chapter, it shows up 12 different times. Not only is it a dominant theme in chapters 4, 5, and 6, it shows up 37 different times, but we need to talk about the Ark of the Covenant because for many of us in this room, our understanding of the Ark has been largely shaped by Harrison Ford. Right, let's, let's just be honest here, right? You know, uh, you know, Indiana Jones or Here's the Lost Ark, like that has very much shaped what we think about when we think about the Ark of the Covenant. But it's not all bad. Uh, even in that secular film, uh, we, we see a, a sacredness, a, a reverence, a respect uh, for the Ark of the Covenant. And, and there's a reason for that. In fact, the, the way that the scriptures describe the Ark of the Covenant, I did not draw this. This is kind of the most accurate, best picture I could find on the internet. Um, but it, it's described as this sacred gold covered on the outside, on the inside, kind of a portable box, if you will. Four feet long, two and a quarter feet high and wide. And unless the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, which they haven't done in a few hundred years, it was to remain in a very specific spot. It was to remain inside the tabernacle behind a thick veil in the inner sanctuary called the most holy place, okay? Now, the reason why it's so significant and so sacred is not only for where it's located, but because of the contents inside of it, right? The contents, there's three main things. Number one, they had these two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments that Moses received from the Lord on Mount Sinai. Those are in there. And then secondly, there's a pot of manna, uh, that, that, uh, the manna that God provided through the wilderness time, God provided for his people. And then thirdly, Aaron's rod, uh, which budded. Aaron is the brother of Moses, the first priest of Israel. Now, the Israelites are not a bunch of hoarders. Uh, these items were kept for very specific reasons. These were important reminders for God's people that provided a rich, uh, a rich significance to who God has been for them in the past. More specifically, there are kind of four, uh, four reasons or four reminders why these items are so significant. Number one, these items are a reminder of God's provision for God's people. Right, the, the pot of manna, that wasn't just kind of a, a reserve, you know, kind of food in case they got hungry. That was a reminder that God miraculously provided for them in the past. Therefore, God will provide for them in the future. Then secondly, they're reminded of the requirements that God has outlined to be in a covenant relationship with a holy God. Right? They didn't have 66 books of the Bible so they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we act? How do we relate with a God who is so holy? 
Well, God gave them the Ten Commandments to start with, gave them another 600 commands after that. And so these two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments represent the requirements that they were to have in order to be in relationship with God, to be set apart from all these other nations. This is an act of God's grace giving them these commands. But then thirdly, uh, this is a reminder that forgiveness is available The top part, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, called the mercy seat, every year the priest would sprinkle blood there in order to atone for the sins of the people. This is very significant here. This is a reminder that, yes, God is holy, but God is a God of forgiveness. And then fourthly, this also represented God's presence, This is God's dwelling uh, in the inner sanctuary here where the Ark of the Covenant should have been. And it is a reminder that God is with his people. God is for his people. Therefore, it should have remained in the tabernacle. Now, uh, Harrison Ford would not have provided uh, you with that information. Now that we know a little bit more of the sacredness of the Ark, we come to verses 3 and 4 and we might have some confusion we might think, what in the world? Why, why did they think this was such a good idea, moving the Ark of the Covenant and go round two with the Philistines? Makes no sense. Well, we also need to be reminded, especially the, the elders of Israel who knew this, there were a couple of examples in Israel's past, in the book of Judges, uh, where uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant was a central piece in God delivering them from something. You think about the fall of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. The Ark of the Covenant was a central piece in that act of deliverance. Uh, the, the, the stopping of, uh, of the water in the Jordan River in, uh, in Joshua chapters 3 and 4. The Ark of the Covenant was a central piece there. And so for the elders, here, the elders here, they're thinking, man, God delivered us in the past with the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe he'll do that again. But the mistake they made is believing that God's power was in this box instead of in God Almighty. Right? We, we get to these next couple of verses, and I'm reminded, you know, for me, I don't like horror movies. I don't watch them anymore. And when I did watch them back in the day, I used to watch them with some friends. And my friend told me, hey, you know, you can just track the music in a horror movie, and you kind of know when something bad's about to happen. Right? When the music gets ominous, Right, that, that's when you know something terrible is about to occur, and you can get ready for it so you're not taken off guard. Well, when we get to the end of verse 4, you could almost hear the ominous music playing in the background. Right? You, you know something bad is about to happen because of who's in charge of the Ark of the Covenant. It's none other than Eli's two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, these two evil priests of Israel. Well, notice what happens, verse 5 tells us that as soon as the ark came into the camp, which was about 20 miles away, uh, it gave Israel a bolt of encouragement and, and even hope. It talks about this mighty shout that resounded so much so that the Philistines heard this. Philistines are now alarmed. What's going on over there? They, they discover that the ark of the covenant had come into the Israelites' camp, and they are terrified. They, they say to themselves, oh boy, here we go. We're, we're going to experience the same thing that the Egyptians experienced with all of those horrible plagues. We are doomed. Right? The Philistines had a type of reverence for the Ark of the Covenant, even for God, that maybe even the, the, the Israelites didn't even have. And so it seems like the tides are turning in the favor of the Israelites. But then you get to verse 9, and it seems as though the Philistines are given the very best halftime speech 
known to man. Like IU Hoosier basketball team needs to hire whoever gave this speech because they are challenging them to fight like men. And in verse 10, they absolutely obliterate the Israelites. 30,000 men are dead. And what's more, you, you have the Ark of the Covenant is captured. You have Eli's two sons both die on the same day. This is a monumental defeat. You could actually argue up until this point, this is one of the worst days in the history of Israel. All right, Philistines defeat you. 34,000 Israelites are now dead. The heir apparent to Eli, Hophni, uh, Phinehas are both dead. And the Ark of the Covenant, everything that the Ark represented is gone. It's been captured. Imagine living in this, in this day. Imagine going through all of, of these incredibly devastating events. You remember the question I asked in the very beginning? Remember the, the question about how, what do you do when it feels like God has gone missing? When you don't know where God is? That's probably what they are experiencing here in this moment. Wondering, where is God? Why has God allowed these things to occur? Well, what we need to understand is that what they did with the Ark of the Covenant was wrong. See, for them, they thought that if we could just bring the Ark of the Covenant out here, then surely God will deliver us. They're trying to twist God's arm, thinking to themselves, oh man, if anything bad happens to the Ark of the Covenant, that's going to be a poor reflection upon God, and God surely will honor his name, and he will defeat the Philistines. Right? They're trying to push God up against the wall and manipulate him into doing what they wanted him to do. They mistakenly believe that if they've got God's furniture, then they have God's power. See, what we have on display, this is not a demonstration of trust or faith, but of superstition, if you will. And look, we might look at what they did here, knowing what we know, and we might think, man, how foolish of them. Like, why, why did they think this was such a good idea to, to bring the ark out here when it wasn't supposed to move? Did they really think they could garner God's power and favor by doing something like this? Now, look, before we jump into being judgmental and kind of looking down on them, I think we need to pause for a moment. And even though these events occurred 3,000 years ago, I think it would be wise for us to ask the question, in what ways do we do something similar with God? In what ways might we fall into trying to control God instead of yield to him? In what ways do we try not to submit to God, but we use God as a means for our own plan, our own agenda, trying to get him to do what we want him to do? Or in other words, I wonder in what ways could you be more superstitious in your faith than you care to admit. And there's one level uh, in one aspect of thinking like that, maybe on the surface of maybe wearing a cross around your neck or having a Christian bumper sticker on your car thinking, if I do these things, then surely God will bless me. God will give me what I want. All right, there's, there's one level that's maybe surfacing. Look, maybe you're not a cross-wearing type of person. Maybe you don't want the accountability uh, driving with a Jesus bumper sticker on your car, so maybe that's not your cup of tea. But let's take it a step deeper here. 
I wonder, maybe you go through a season of life where you have to make an important decision. You're in a fork in the road moment. Or maybe you're walking through hardship. You're walking through a trial. People who go through those kinds of things, what I tend to hear as a pastor uh, from time to time, people will say, oh, we got to get back into church. We got to get back into reading the Bible. Or we got we to gotta pray more, right? Because, man, when I pray a certain way, when I say these certain words, I tend to nail that presentation at work. Or when I pray a certain way, the baby usually falls asleep. Or when I pray a certain way, my sports team usually wins. Or I hear people say, if I give a certain amount of money to the church, or if I get really desperate and I fast, then God will bless me. Then God will do what I want him to do. See, I wonder, could you be more superstitious in your faith than you care to admit? Look, all those things are good things. Don't get me wrong. Those are all things that we should be doing. But we shouldn't be doing those things in order to earn God's grace and favor and blessing. We should be doing those things in response to God's grace and blessing that he's ultimately poured out in and through Jesus that he lavishes on us. We don't do those things in order to get God to do what we want him to do or to stop hardship. No, we do those things in response to who he is. So I just want to caution us a little bit as we think through using God for our own agendas. You can call it superstition or whatever you want to call it. Beware of this tendency, even having good intentions. By far, the most popular way I think this has lived out is when people kind of try to follow a spiritual equation that's found nowhere in the Bible. The spiritual equation goes something like this. A plus B plus C equals D. A is I, I pray every day. Plus B, I read my Bible every day. Plus C, I avoid sin and go to church, equals D, God will bless me. God will give me the life that I want. God will remove all hardship from me. Problem with that is it's nowhere in the Bible. There's no guarantees for those kinds of things if we're being faithful to the Lord. And I think it's exactly what the Israelites fell into. One commentator put it this way. He said, whenever the church stops confessing thou art worthy and begins chanting thou art useful, well, then you know that the ark of God has been captured again. Be aware of this, thinking if I hold up my side of the bargain, then God will hold up his side of the bargain. Now, these first 11 verses teach us that God is very willing to suffer shame rather than allow us to carry on a false relationship with him. God is very willing to allow you to even experience disappointments if it means waking you up and realizing the type of God that he actually is. You cannot control God. Psalm 115.3 declares, The Lord is in the heavens, and he does what he pleases. You cannot put God in your debt. You cannot manipulate him. You cannot control him. He will not bargain or negotiate with us. Now, in sad irony, you know, Israel, they plan to bring the Ark of the Covenant as the key to victory against the Philistines. And yet, in God's sovereignty, he uses that to begin fulfilling his purposes and the judgment upon Eli, leading to Hophni and Phinehas' death. But even greater irony, Maybe a stranger twist here of what we see 
is that on a day of what looks like great defeat and dishonor against God is actually the beginning of God defending his honor. He's now clearing out the corrupt leadership in Shiloh with Eli and Eli's sons. God was very unhappy with the Philistines, but even more so with those who were in leadership among the Israelites. So God acts in his own way, according to his own timetable. He cannot be limited in any way by any human agenda. But the other big takeaway here is, look, God does not want us to trust in objects, whether they're religious or not. He doesn't want us to trust in in empty rituals. He doesn't want a superstitious, driven obedience or some sort of spiritual bargain that that we've made with him. No, God wants us to trust in him to say, if I have God, that's all I need, that's all I want. Whatever happens, happens. I will trust in the Lord my God. Now, this takes us to the second half of chapter four, and we learn of the impact that these devastating uh, events have on God's people and on Eli in particular. And we see act three, judgment is fulfilled. And, you know, we've gotten to know Eli a lot over these first couple of chapters, Well, in verses 12 through 18, we have a very sad description of the end of Eli. This passage really opens up in verse 12. It begins with a soldier from the battlefield who runs the 22-mile distance, Aphek to Shiloh, in one day, and he has horrible news to share. Now, we're also told that he's from Benjamin, right? Again, this is not a random detail that's just thrown in there. There will be another man also from Benjamin in a few chapters, who will be a dominant figure throughout 1 Samuel. His name is Saul, first king of Israel, also from the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, some people actually believe that this soldier in verse 12 is a young Saul. There's no way to confirm that. I personally think that's very unlikely. But nonetheless, I think there's a bit of foreshadowing happening here. I think the foreshadow is that in the same way bad news will come from a man of Benjamin, so too, in a few chapters later, bad things will happen to God's people from a man of Benjamin. You know, notice the way he's described. His clothes are torn. Dirt are, is on his head. It's not just because of the, the long-distance run that he made. This is what you would do during this time period as an act of mourning. So when he's there, he finally gets there. Eli doesn't notice his outward appearance or bad news is coming because verse 15, we're told Eli is now blind. He's 98 years old. All right, we're also painted the scene, verse 18, of, of Eli, who's old, he's blind, and he's overweight. He's just sitting here watching on the side of the road, but he cannot see. He, he's watching with his ears, and his heart is, is trembling uh, for the Ark of the Covenant. Eli knows at the very least that the Ark of the Covenant has been taken out, But he also knows that his two precious sons are in charge of the Ark of the Covenant. And so for Eli here, his heart's trembling not for the Ark, but on the account of the Ark, because he knows that his sons and their fate are very much tied with the Ark of the Covenant. He knows judgment is coming, and he knows that something bad has happened or is about to occur. Soldier tells the whole town first, there's an outcry. Eli hears this, so he asks, hey, what's the news? And the soldier tells Eli the bad news in ascending order. 
right? First tells the Philistines cause Israel to flee. 34,000 have died. Both of your sons are now dead. And oh, by the way, the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. Now, what's interesting, according to verse 18, is that it's the news about the Ark being captured, not his two sons dying, that caused Eli to be somewhat seized with terror, if you will, and he falls backwards on his seat and he breaks his neck and he dies. That's how much he kind of was sensing the, the judgment of the Lord was being executed over himself and over his house. A very sad last kind of phrase here, short biography, if you will, of Eli, verse 18. He had judged uh, Israel for 40 years is both judge and priest during this time, a, a sinfully tolerant father, didn't discipline his kids. Uh, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, they're committing all kinds of, of evil and sinful things, corrupt things. And God, as a result, has executed judgment over Eli. God kept his word. Well, we get more bad news here. Act 4, not a lot of good news in this chapter. The glory of Israel, the glory of the Lord has departed we learn in, in this act that Eli had a daughter-in-law, the, the wife of Phineas, and that she was pregnant during this time. We also learn that upon hearing the tragic news of all the things that have taken place, it causes her to go into labor. And we know that she'll actually die. She'll pass away from giving birth here. And she's struggling throughout the birthing process, so much so that one of the women there that was attending to her tries to encourage her. And it says, look, this baby that you're, that you're giving birth to is actually a son, which would have been significant news. This would have been a cause of great celebration at this time period. It doesn't have any effect on her. She doesn't pay any attention to that. It just didn't matter for her. She's about to die, tragically. But before she does, she names her new baby Ichabod and declares the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. In fact, Ichabod literally means, where is the glory? It's translated for us as the glory has departed, the glory has left. It's very interesting. The woman here in her dying breath has taught more theology than probably her husband did in his entire lifetime. This is a sad, sad close to a devastating chapter. Let me maybe pull out a couple of things here for us. One, one of the more interesting word plays that I think that we've seen so far is in one of the ways that Eli is described in verse 18. It probably stood out to you. He's described as heavy. Remember that? Kind of seems random. Like, why are we drawing attention to this man's weight? It's not very PC, right? Why draw attention to him being heavy overweight? Well, the reason is because it's actually a play on Hebrew words here. The same Hebrew word for heavy and the Hebrew word for glory comes from the same Hebrew root word. In fact, it's almost identical. It's so incredibly similar that when it's being used to talk about humans, it's translated as heavy, but when it's used to talk about God, it's translated as glory. And this is helpful, especially when we think about understanding God's glory, which tends to be a Christian cliche, do everything for God's glory, what does that actually mean? Well, when the Bible talks about God's glory, it means that there is a weight to who God is. It means that there's, there's something significant, there's something heavy to who God is and his eternal worth, that his 
perfect being and his holiness and his majesty, it's not light. It's not something we should be flippant toward, but it's weighty and it's glorious and it's significant and it's heavy. This wordplay really comes to light uh, with Eli, not only because he's called heavy, but because of the reason why he's heavy. If you remember chapter 2, verse 29, He's being described as the judgment of God is being pronounced by the unnamed man, the unnamed prophet. The reason why he's heavy, chapter 2, verse 29, he was fattening himself with the stolen meat from from those that were worshiping in the tabernacle. So you can almost look at it this way. He dies because he stole God's glory for himself. In addition, chapter 2, verse 29, told again that same verse, Eli's judgment was coming Because he chose to honor or glorify or he considered more heavy his own sons over God. And as a result, God judges him accordingly. This is an example, perfect example, tragic example of Romans 3.23. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God the heaviness, the weight of God. Ichabod, the grandson of Eli, who he never met, remember his name? Where is the glory? Well, in a very real sense, that glory is tied around Eli's waist, dead on the side of a road. And on the other hand, it's been taken, it's departed, taken and stolen by the Philistines. And here Eli's dynasty ends because look, ultimately Eli considered to be more glorious, more heavy, more weighty, more significant, his sons and his comforts more than God. And he settled for less and was judged accordingly. I want you to pick up on the warning here for us as we think about and consider what is most glorious What's most weighty? What's most significant? And am I giving my life to that? I think that's one of the takeaways here is to avoid settling for things that that promise ultimate fulfillment, but always fall short. Like for Eli, it was his sons. It was comfort for the Israelites. It was the ark. They're settling for things less when you have God and his glory that that were available. I think about this, and I think about the famous C.S. Lewis quote, where he says, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far to easily please. Eli, the Israelites, were far too easily pleased and they settled for less. And my question for you today is what are you settling for? Are you settling for less? Are you settling to satisfy the heart, your heart's desire for something that in comparison to God and his glory is like these mud pies in a slum compared to a holiday stay at the sea? Are you looking to something or, or someone or an experience or possessions 
And are you looking to those things and thinking those things are more satisfying? They're weightier than God. I think it's important, it's healthy to identify what those are because your life will actually follow whatever it is. Your life will revolve around those things. So for example, if you consider to be most glorious and most weighty making a certain amount of money, guess what? You're going to try to make that money at all costs. Your life will, you'll pursue that. If it's a relationship, you'll pursue that relationship. If it's having a certain kind of body image or a certain possession or car or house or whatever it is, you will pursue those things at all costs. The, the glory that we're after, we will seek with our lives. For Israel, they want a military victory. They settle for the ark. So I wonder, what, what is it for you today? Maybe a better question is, once you've identified that, what's going to help you to, to look up and not be so focused on these temporal things, these mud pies, but to look up and to be captivated by God and his glory? What's going to enable you to do that? Well, personally, I think the answer is found in answering correctly Ichabod's name. Remember Ichabod? Where is the glory? Well, for the Israelites here, the glory has departed. But what about for us on this side of the cross? Where is God's glory best displayed, fully known, and fully seen? Jesus. That's where God's glory is. That, that's where the, the presence of God, where we can experience it most tangibly, it's found in Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 14 says the word, talking about Jesus, became flesh and dwelt. Literally, that word is tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Look, in Jesus, we have God's full glory and full presence. There is full grace and full mercy available. And I just wonder, who, who needs to turn away from lesser things, from idols, from things that you're settling for, these mud pies, and be reminded of all that you have in Jesus? You have ultimate satisfaction in Jesus. You have the God's glory and his presence and all the grace that you need found in Jesus. Look, don't settle for less. Don't be like Eli. Don't be like the Israelites. Those idols, they will never deliver what they are offering and promising you. They will always disappoint you. Look, we have Jesus, and in Jesus, we have God. He is our Emmanuel, God with us. And in comparison to 1 Samuel 4, oh man, Jesus is better. Jesus is a lot better. He's the better glory. He's the better presence. He's the better Ark of the Covenant. He's the better tabernacle. He's the better temple. That in Jesus, we have God's full glory and presence on display. He's full of grace and he's full of truth. Man, I don't know about you. I'm so thankful that the story of the Bible doesn't end at chapter 4, 1 Samuel. I'm so glad it goes on and we see Jesus. This passage points forward to King Jesus I'm so thankful for that because as you and I, as we walk through seasons of life where, to go back to the introduction, we wonder, where is God? Has God gone missing? In those moments especially, we can turn and look to Jesus. Remember what Jesus told his disciples before he ascended? 
very last words he told them as he descended, Matthew 28, verse 20, and behold, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. God is with us. He's not gone missing. We have Jesus, and he promises to always, always be with us. Let's pray together. God, we do give you praise for King Jesus. We thank you that in him there is ultimate satisfaction, ultimate delights. God, I pray as we live each and every day bombarded with temptations to settle for less, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the beauty and the power and the glory and, and the presence of you is found in Christ. Lord, remind us that Jesus is always, always better, that there's no comparison. We thank you that you've made Jesus available or for those who believe, those who put their faith in him can find forgiveness and grace and mercy. We thank you in Christ's name, amen.